a lot of people just don't have as many kids as you. No. They don't have the passion for Whistler and the Whistler lifestyle that you do. Because it's my home. Born and raised. Yeah. Born. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the, uh, I think, what, how many kids were in your class? Five. Five or six. Yeah, five or six. <laughs> it's so rare. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, there's not many of us. It was a small, small place back then. Yeah. How was it growing up there? Ski racing in the yeah, winters was... and skating in the summers? Yeah. Um, there wasn't enough kids for sports teams. So we, uh, you skied in the winter and you played tennis or skateboarded in the summer. I didn't play tennis. Um, so yeah, that's all you did. And, and, uh, and then, um, after a while you, um, became competitive typically. I mean, everybody kind of went into skiing because it was, um, it was a organized curriculum, uh, with coaches and all that where skateboarding was an, you know, an individual kind of creative on your own deal. And this is before X games or any option. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. And, um, we didn't have the infrastructure up there to really get that great anyway. And so you go, we would follow the path of skiing into that curriculum. And once after a, a while, you'd get forced to choose between skiing and skateboarding because you ended up at a competitive level. You ski all year round at different places where there's snow. So you ski in the summer on the glaciers training, and then you go somewhere in the fall where there's man-made snow. And oh. yeah, uncertain years, you'd go to Australia or Argentina. I didn't end up going to those places, Europe or whatever, but uh, yeah. But yeah, when you commit to skiing, it's an all year. Yeah, thing. yeah, totally. Like yeah. Summers aren't off. Yeah, yeah. So that was the kind of the progression. I know that one. Yeah. I remember that in my, in rowing, it was like that. It was, uh, it wasn't my reality. Cause I was, um, put myself through university. I worked in the summers and saved up all my money, but at a certain level, everybody, even me finally, eventually, but not while I was actually in university, just, but at a certain level, uh, they all just trained all through the summers. Like it was, it wasn't about working and saving up. The parents were taking care of it. It was going to camps and training and coming uh, in September. Probably better. any sport that you start to get to yeah. some level of high level of competition, you're just doing it more and more and more. Yeah. yeah. I know you love it. I know you love the skiing and the, and the skateboarding and, and Whistler in general and the kids up there. Yeah. I know you're helping, uh, uh, tell me about the old school initiative. Oh, the old school initiative, my passion project. Yeah. I mean, um, how to start, um, that started by, um, embarrassing. I, I say embarrassingly because there's a, a senior member of the men, the Canadian men's Alpine, like world cup downhill squad who in Canada, it's so pathetic, still has to pay for his own team fees. Um, so, so talk about a go nowhere sport in terms of uh, career, but, um, in Canada anyway. Um, and so he approached me, um, for some sponsorship. Um, and so I gave him some money, um, and then fast forward, uh, through to like this late spring of that year where, kind of skateboarding season was getting kicked in in Whistler and there's these young group of girls and um, two a, a, a pair of sisters and, a, and their best friend who started something and I love this name called Real Wild Kittens and um, it and they every Friday would go and show up um, at the skate park and try and teach young girls how to skateboard um, and I saw about it on Instagram and I'm like, what's going on here? Took my Edie at the time, um, who hangs out with your daughter, 
live, um, same age. And th- I took her there and I was kind of asking questions. What, what's going on here? Like, you know, do, you, do we pay? And they're like, no, we don't take any money. And I was like, what? Like, and so you do this every Friday and they're like every Friday. And I'm like, That's what? Awesome. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, like, do you guys like, do you need, do you need like t-shirts or anything like that? Like, and they're like, oh, we'd love t-shirts. And I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I'll buy you t-shirts. Yeah. Because they brought out like these cliff bars or whatever, right? And I'm like, well, who, where do you get that? And I'm like, oh, some people give them to us. And I was like, well, and so we got in the t-shirt. Anyway, so bought them a bunch of merchandise. My brother has um, a merch house called Vandal Merch House. Um, so I went to him and he gave me a good deal and gave them a bunch of all. And then I was like, do you want some sweat tops for like the coaches? Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. And they do all their own artwork. So we had that all printed on the stuff. Um, and then that kind of uh led to uh and then at the same time the whistler skateboard club started um and the whistler skateboard club all of a sudden was it was for anybody boys and girls and it was like this curriculum based skateboard and i was like whoa that's like amazing um so i put in one of my other kids in that and one the second weekend we showed up and there was a family with three boys who showed up in one skateboard and so one of the coaches was like, I think we're going to probably need to get some gear. And I was like, I'll buy you the gear. Like, I just, I think it's so amazing that you guys started They're this thing. They're giving their time. What's that? They're giving their time. Yeah. And, and, they, and they started, I was like, we got to keep these programs sustainable. So like, how can I support it? So I went and bought them some gear. And then the real wild kittens were like, oh, I think we need some gear too. <laughs> so I, I went and bought them some gear and, and I bought it from Super Distribution. Uh, the, the main owner of Super Distribution now, anyway, he's also an old school whistler guy yeah marco feller yeah and so i phoned him up i'm like can you give me a deal on gear yeah um and so then i uh all of a sudden next year rolls around and everybody's calling me for all this stuff the guy on the alpine <laughs> team the, the real wild kittens the whistler skateboard club and i was like huh and and so i i kind of committed to doing that again and i'm like you know if i'm gonna do this I should probably start to maybe do like get some make, friends to make, help. Yeah, get some friends to help, um, but also form um, uh, like something, right? And I give it a name, um, get a website, be more formal about it, have people apply for funding. What is the website? Um, uh, the Old School Initiative dot com. Or maybe it's uh, it's just oldschoolinitiative.com, not the, I can't remember. There it is. Um, and we created the logo, and um, that's Milo on there on the front. Um, <laughs> and then a whole bunch of old pictures of us skateboarding back in the day. And um, and so I, what I was trying to do was actually keep it fully anonymous so that no one knew in the valley who the old school initiative was. Yeah, there's and it a was, cool mystique. Yeah, and and it, and it was kind of rolling along like that for a little while. There's only like obviously the girls from the Real Wild Kittens knew and stuff like that. Um, and then, um, and it was going like that for a while and we started getting some applications. Uh, I don't really know who you people are. <laughs> I think I might coach some of your kids in skateboarding. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. Um, but as I was trying to fund this, I, I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I need to get maybe more people involved. And how am I going to do that without anybody knowing who this is and all that kind of stuff? So then I started uh, making some phone calls and, uh, and around the dinner table, I was like, well, it, it actually the, the conversation came up around a dinner table with a bunch of old schoolers uh, that I grew up with up there. Have you heard this old school initiative? Like, it's pretty cool. Hey, eh? and I was like, yeah. And I was like, that's me. And they were like, what? Had to tell them. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I'd love your help. Yeah. And then, uh, and then an article came out in peak news magazine 
magazine about it, and it kind of they called lifting up the curtain of the old school initiative. Um, and then people started calling and wanting more, both funding and to give money. Nice. Um, and so it's been like it's been incredible. Yeah. Um, we got a really like Instagram. You know, we don't, we only have like 550 followers, but we got a cool thing going on Instagram where you can see we give a hundred percent of every cent we get. And I still fund the vast majority of it uh, personally. Um, but like, it's, it's like on Instagram, you can see like from the very bottom, how we kind of started and all the gear we give away. And then, so f- those skis there, um, that's Foon and Foon is a Pemberton based custom, like handmade ski company. Cool. And so we collaborate with them um, and we get 40% of the profits of each ski and we donate a hundred percent of that. And so by that, I, you know, I started sending emails to all the real estate community and being like, you spend a thousand bucks in Christine's every weekend on black home. Don't go to lunch one day, buy a pair of these skis, support the local community. And you're also supporting a Pemberton based company that's employing people in the Valley. So that's been a really cool collaboration. Um, and anyway, that's kind of, and so fast, I think we're like four or five years in and we've do a ton of sponsorship and donations. It's yeah. It's a, it's awesome. Oh, it's so fun. I can tell you're so passionate. About oh, I it. love that's it. It's working. Like, I love it. Yeah. It's congratulations, yeah. man. It's so cool. I love how it came about too, almost accidentally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just so grateful that, yeah, I guess the first was these women that were teaching the young girls how to skate and it started with that and it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. It's super cool. Is that where you get your skis? I do now. Yeah. Nice. And they're awesome skis. Yeah. I remember you telling me about them at at your place and it was, uh, you're pretty, like you're so particular with the dimensions and and everything. Yeah. Cause we made a carving ski this year. So it was really working out how that was going to unfold. I get it. I love carving. Yeah. Tell me about Vandal. I didn't know that's what your brother did. Is that a local company? Yeah. Um, he, um, yeah. So it's called Vandal Merch House and it's been a, a pretty, it's a fairly rapidly growing business. Um, so they do all merch. I love merch. Yeah. Like hats and everything patches. Like you see yeah. those patches that we have on the guys that, and kids that we sponsor. Um, and he does, yeah, everything. And so he just bought his second big, massive automated press brought it up from the States during COVID and you know, that can kind of double his business. All of the, um, like right now, I believe all of, you know, like Thrasher magazine and the, the brand Thrasher. So our buddy, um, who is from super distribution owns the Canadian license for Thrasher and Quinn, my brother prints all every Thrasher shirt you see out there comes from Vandal merch house right now. Mm. Yeah. So That's it's cool. uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, the other thing I should say about the old school initiative, any kid that we sponsor, their application, um, 50% of what they submit needs to be what they do for the community. So it's not only um, like their athletic merit, it's how they're doing things in the community because those kids, those girls from Real Wild Kittens who are showing up every Friday for free. How old were those girls, the instructors? At the time, like 14, 15, oh. 16 years old. Amazing. Yeah. And so um, that's also a very important component of how we operate. So the kid, when you say kids, you mean kids applying for funding? Yeah. Or, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's crazy because we, right now we're only, I mean, because we're still quite small, we sponsor those programs with all their hardware. We bought all their shade tents to make them look more pro with all their logos and big flags. So when the kids come to the park to their programs, it's, it's like looks pro. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but the kids that was four of them now that we sponsor, and they're all killing it athletically. Like national team, snowboard squad, world juniors, like, killing it the guy on the alpine team he came 13th in the olympics he podiumed last year in a super g a world cup super g so that's cool too oh so it must be so fun for you to watch those races or even just hear about them having like a horse in that race so to speak right yeah Yeah. congrats man that's what it's all about right yeah it's been super cool it's so cool so Whistler was good. I mean, it's, it's planted in you this passion for this and these kids and you must look back and, and you loved growing up there, but, but if something like this existed, uh, it would have been awesome. Oh yeah. yeah. And maybe nowadays even more important because there's more kids up there and more opportunity in these two, uh, categories for sure. Yeah. And giving back's important, right? I think there's a whole bunch of people that's funny. Whistler is such a weird place with all these weird people that went and set up there like my parents, um, and had a bunch of weird kids like myself. What took uh, your parents up there? Um, they left, they're from Montreal, born and raised left during the FLQ crisis. Like a lot of people did at that time. Um, came and like living literally, you know, like quite urban, um, people and moved to Bowen Island. And this was in like 72 or something and then left Bowen Island and moved to Whistler, an even smaller community. And the people who lived in Whistler at that time, <laughs> there's a few of them still around. They're like, they're look like now that I'm, I don't know, more uh, mature and have the ability to, you know, tr- read and understand people a little bit better if there's some unique characters. <laughs> there, and um, they were going there for, you know, unique reasons at the time. They wanted to be isolated. They wanted to be, you know, there's a lot of uh, hippies, a lot of ski bums, a lot of like people just kind of escaping reality or whatever, a civilization because it was extremely small. Um, or really wanted to be in the mountains for sure that there's that type of person as well. But, um, so that's, they moved there. Um, my dad actually had a job with the keg, so he was okay moving to that environment. But the reason he moved there, um, was he ran the original keg restaurant in Whistler, which was down on Alta Lake and it was only open in winters. And yeah, that's why. And then he got into, um, real estate. My mom opened one, helped open one of the first real estate offices in Whistler. Um, and my dad got into kind of construction and real estate. Uh, they had a little ski hill called Rainbow Ski Village. So the little area between Alpine Meadows and Emerald Estates that's now called Rainbow. And there's all the housing there and a gas station and a grocery store. That was our ski hill. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, and that's where I learned to ski. Um, and so they were entrepreneurs and into kind of real estate and all that kind of shit. And and, and then that grew. Amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't, they're so unique, right? I don't, I don't know anybody right now that's doing that. It's like just moving out from a big metropolis like Vancouver, Montreal into the mountains where there's hardly anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then riding that 
what a wave it's been for 50 years, right? Oh, dude. Must be some of the old schoolers up there that probably don't like how, how booming Whistler is. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people who over the years, in particular, probably the last 20 years who have left. Right. And a lot of people were moving. So a lot of those old schools, like my parents and my parents' generation and their friends, a lot of them ended up moving to Pemberton or Squamish. Um, and just for trying to continue to chase that smaller type community and more real casual. Um, and um, like my dad now lives in Squamish. Um, when I last lived up there, I was living in Pemberton. That was more of a, it was more affordable at the time for myself and my wife. And when we had our first kid, um, but yeah, it, uh, it was, a, it was a crazy place to grow up. And when did you leave originally? I left when I got a job offer with Ani. What, really? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and I was in and out, like I, you know, I went to Montana on a ski racing scholarship to university, uh, then went to Victoria and did school there cause I didn't finish in Montana. What about uh, your modeling career? Modeling career. Yeah. Where did that fit in? Modeling career. Well, they're, they're, Google they're, that. Google that. There's no modeling career that you could find on Google. I'm hopeful anyway. I was in a magazine once, but, uh, that was just because a friend asked. Yeah. Uh, so you squeeze it in there. Hobo, Hobo magazine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which was a cool magazine for a little while, but, um, I don't think it exists anymore. Uh, maybe it's online. It might be. Yeah. Sean Dojamont. So how'd you get a job at Ani when, uh, you're some Whistler kid? How did that happen? When I'd finished school and university and met my, um, met Danielle, who at that time was my girlfriend. And then we got married. Um, we wanted to actually try and stay in Victoria and I didn't want, I didn't want to have anything to do with real estate or construction. I had put myself through university in the summers by going through construction and working for, um, Whistler excavations, which is CME's, uh, competition. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that group well, um, and, uh, I wanted to, at that time, what was in vogue was tech, right? It was the dot coms. And I wanted to be part of that. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was like the, the failing industry with the dot bomb and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, um, my mom had a thriving business in real estate and my dad was kind of still building some spec houses. And I was like, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to Whistler and make a go of it because there's nothing going on here. Um, so we moved back, um, and, uh, I started working with my mom, which is <laughs> like anybody who is deciding to work with their mom should give me a call. Um, anyway, and your mom was cool. Yeah. It was still yeah, challenging. Sure. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, for sure. It was challenging. I mean, she, you know, she taught me a lot obviously, and was a complete veteran in the industry up there and up there was different, right? So in Whistler, when you were in real estate as a broker, there was no commercial representation. There was no Colliers, there was no CBRE, there's no Cushman Wakefield, none of that. There was the Whistler, there was the offices in Whistler that you did, you were jack of all trades. You did a, a retail lease, you sold a multi-million dollar home, you sold a condo, you sold development land, you did an industrial lease, Very small you town. did it all. Yeah. Um, and so um, that was cool actually about going to be a broker in Whistler. It's not like that as much anymore. No. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, we had a listing. I mean, I think I've told this story on other podcasts or whatever, but, uh, we had a listing, um, in Squamish for a development site. And, um, it was a terrible, terrible market in Whistler. Like I, I hadn't, I hadn't garnered a commission in 10 months. 
Like it was like there, I took a second mortgage out on my property to pay the first. <laughs> like, and so, um, it was a bizarre time and we had this listing and we had a new baby and my Danielle and I had a new baby and, you know, I was like, um, uh, what am I going to do here? Right? Like this is getting serious. And so, um, uh, I, I had this listing and I was going down to Vancouver the next day to meet with David Evans and Chris Evans, David Evans being at Cresty at the time and Chris Evans being at Ani. Did you know them? Yeah. I went to school with them in Victoria mm -hmm. and, and I knew them a little bit through the network growing up. Cause they were kind of West van guys. A lot of people, a lot of people from the North shore spent a lot of time in Whistler. Their dad was involved in some development in Whistler and stuff like that. My mom knew his dad, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and anyway, so I had a bottle of tequila and, uh, um, a joint with um, sh just like, you know, bad bud. That's all I could afford <laughs> at the time. And I, and Danielle and Jolie were asleep upstairs and it was like two in the morning and I had these, this whole package out, all the drawings, the, you know, all the title documents, restrictive covenants, the development agreement, because it had a building permit issue, just everything. And I'm sitting there like, I got to go to Vancouver tomorrow and sell this piece of real estate. Yeah. And um, yeah, I went down, I met with Dave Evans first at Cressy and and they kind of passed. Uh, went and met with Chris and they wrote an offer. And um, and then I went, you know, and, and we went, worked through the deal. Um, and uh, they offered me a job after they removed conditions and were moving to close on the property. And I was like, I was just stoked that I sold that piece of real estate. Yeah. It was a bigger deal at the time. Cause it was like a 56 unit townhouse development. In at Squamish. the time in Squamish that really had, wasn't happening yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was great. Right. Um, and I, and, uh, they offered me a job and I turned them down. Um, because at the time I was still quite heavily involved in skiing, not, not really a little bit of, not much competition, but more like I was coaching Dave Murray ski camps, which are adult racing camps and ski can big mountain kind of stuff. And I was doing some big mountain work and I was still partially sponsored and, and, and I would go in, um, and I'd ski in the mornings and go into the office and work on real estate in the afternoon. I've kind of said this joke a few times, but that's maybe why I didn't get a commission for 10 months. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, I didn't want to leave that. Like that was an incredible lifestyle. Right. Totally. Um, and yeah. And so, um, Danny was not, we were in Pemberton. Pemberton, like, oh, he'd, he'd drive her crazy. We'd go into the grocery store to get some groceries to make dinner, and I'd see half my graduating class. Because I, I went to high school in Pemberton. There's no high school in Whistler. So everybody, we took the bus up to Pemberton every day, and everybody converged in Pemberton from Whistler, Pemberton, Darcy, Birkin, Darcy um, Indian Band, and Mount Curry Indian Band. All came to Pemberton secondary. So it was just a wild population in that school. Um, and, um, so we were in Pemberton and, you know, I'd see half my graduating class in the grocery store and Danielle would be like, let's go home and <laughs> make dinner. And there was no community center. There was no amenities. There was nothing. And so you have to be a certain type of person to be able to operate in that environment, especially I think a mother, with a new child. And so I go back to my mom when she was first in Whistler. And so you can like, there was, there was five kids my age 
and born at that in that year. And there was, you know, I don't know, 400 or 600 full-time residents in Whistler. And so she had, she literally went around and knocked on people's doors that she heard lived there full-time and had a kid and said, hey, my name's Betty. I just had my new kid here. His name's Bo. Do you want to be friends? No way. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. And so, yeah. And, but if you think about that for a second, it's a certain mindset, right? Yeah. And I think most people probably are not cool with that and don't have that. Mindset. Of course. Um, otherwise there would have been a bigger population up there at the time. Um, and so Danny was not stoked about that. Um, and right. And she also wanted to, she saw. Did you suggest that? Well, my mom. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's <laughs> like, I don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Um, and she, she was also, um, what's your problem? Go knock on some doors. Go yeah, on. yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and she, she definitely met friends and, you know, she went to baby group and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but, um, it was, it was just, it's a different, it's a different mindset. Right. And she, it's, it's also, uh, this is, uh, you know, a sidebar of the story. Um, I'm a, I'm by nature, a pretty ambitious person and, um, when we moved up to Pemberton and I was like, you know, going into the office at noon, skiing all morning, you know, hitting like, uh, like powder days, you know, I, I, I would, you know, I'd stop at the Petrocan in the morning. I'd get my coffee. I'd dip my Baileys in the coffee and I'd be going skiing. And, and I think that I started to lose some ambition. And I don't think Danny was stoked about that either. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I had probably, and she, and like she, you got, and to be fair to Danny, like she's pretty cool. Like when I met her, you know, we traveled and uh, around the world, like we stayed, like she, she's an ambitious person and she was highly acceptable of unusual environments. Um, but I think she was like, man, you were pretty ambitious when we met. You made some promises and I'm watching this dude kind of melt into this environment <laughs> that is a high level of comfort and not much ambition. Um, and she didn't say it like that. I could just, re I could tell that maybe that's what she was thinking. Um, anyway, so Ani, uh, I turned them down for all those reasons and Ani made, and they made me a better offer. And I could kind of read between the lines with Danny. I was like, okay, fuck. Like you want me to do this. I think Did she, she didn't say it. She's just giving you a, no, no, she never really was like, I want you to do this. It was more, I could just tell. Right. And yeah. like, again, and, and I, and I was trying to, like, I was also recognizing that this poor, and you know, we only had one car at the time and she's pushing the baby carriage down the road to go to baby group and it's potholes and dirt and snow and Pemberton in the winter at like this fog settles in in most of the day and it's like moist and dark and it's like yeah. so it's not it wasn't ideal depressing depressing yeah i think it's changed a lot now because there's more amenities community community totally. center lots of stuff going on there right it's not you know when we were living there it was probably like 1500 in the community i think there's like 4000 now i can't believe she played it that cool and didn't even give you a look never mind yeah yeah you know, say anything yeah even so, lisa gave me a look like, yeah i had an amazing vacation over the holiday break and i i was basically was depressed when i got home because i loved it so much yeah. and i had this big launch sort of weighing on me i basically laid on the couch for a day and a half, like playing backgammon and just messing around. And she's kind of like, she's so warm and like a hippie type mentality. But after a day and a half of that, she's kind of looking at me like, what's up? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, how long is this going to go yeah, off for? Yeah. Like, let's, let's get on with this. Yeah, yeah. Let's get on with things. Yeah. Um, so you reconsidered and they made a better offer. Yeah. I made a better offer and reconsidered and yeah, I ended up um, making the move. Um, Cause that's what you asked is how did I think, how did I end up? Yeah. Ani. What was the job? Uh, it was, um, well, Ani, 
Ani at that time was just in this like. What year was this? That was, hmm, I don't know, 2003, 2004, maybe something like that. Does that make sense? Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and so they were, that was like at the commencement of their like crazy, aggressive growth. Like what was the big project at the time? Well, that they had, um, Steveston, which was, the, that was the big one. That was, well, they had Suterbrook, they had Victoria Hill. Uh-huh. Like it, it, they had a quiet, like it was all, it was like go time. Yeah. And then continue and continued expansion yeah. after that. So I came in to be in development and acquisitions. I thought you started in sales. Well, development and acquisitions. Um, and so then, um, uh, and it was weird because every site that I was involved in the acquisition, I just took over as a development manager. Um, and so it was, it was a wild time. Uh, and then T- Danny ended up working with them. So they offered her a job. She became one of their top salespeople for a couple of years. She was actually making more money than I was <laughs> as in acquisitions and development That's in sales. And uh, cause you remember back then in sales, like you could, it was, there, it was a lot different than it is now. I remember it was that. Just, totally. You could kill it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so Ani was crazy. Um, and, uh, lots of, lots of good, lots of bad. Um, but like the, the, you know, the education that came out of that organization during that time for a lot of, I remember recruiters, there was this kind of known thing about recruiters in Vancouver that would um, say that, you know, uh, one year at Ani was two years experience anywhere else in the industry. That's and cool. so, you know, if you were there for five years, you had 10 years experience in the industry. Why is that? It was, it was just, it was, it was the volume that we were like, it was crazy. And there was a high level of autonomy. So they hired a certain type of person that could thrive in an environment where you were given a lot of autonomy and a lot of responsibility. And you had to be a problem solver. You had to be a self-starter, super ambitious and super motivated. So next thing you know, they got all these people there that are of that profile and just like going after it. What what kind of profile? Like how would you choose... Uh, somebody like that. Is it like someone that was a competitive athlete? In yeah, a lot of ex-athletes, a yeah, ton of ex-athletes were there. Totally, totally, all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. super aggressive. Um, and and then you you give that man, you give that profile a high level of autonomy to go operate, and it's pretty amazing what you what that results in, right? It results in outcomes. Yeah. Um, and, and growth. And, and so it was, um, it was neat to be part of that. It was challenging, right? It's a, uh, it, it was a wild place to work. Well, let me explain to people what that, what I think that job is for, for those listening that don't understand, but starting in, in a development department or team and a big developer like that, you start kind of as not a peon, but your job is to work with the city and all of the consultants to move that development through kind of the development design approval process. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in the early days when you, before you're an expert, you've got, I guess, a, a senior leader that's you're checking in with every day or every week or mm-hmm. something that's saying, yeah. try this, think of that. Yeah. Don't accept no in this department. Oh no, they'll do more there in terms of negotiating with the city. Is that about it? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a good way to learn. Yeah. And yeah. think of what you're learning. You're learning how to create so much value in real estate, the value of that piece of dirt when you buy it. And then here you are as some young twenties type person now leading the charge is this thing. You're adding millions and millions and millions of dollars in value. Yeah, it was, it was on, it was incredible. Um, and 
you know, I would say one of the biggest takeaways from being at that organization, um, because real estate development and construction, I always say it's one of the riskiest businesses on the planet financially. I don't mean for like life safety. I'm talking about like financial, like, you know, you're not like an underwater welder or something. Um, but, uh, you, you know, or like a special forces operator, um, you know, it, you, it's not for the faint of heart. Right. And so you, you are engaging in activity that's extremely risky and costly. And, you know, an example of that is, you know, you, when you're building, um, you know, a residential tower or an office tower or whatever, um, you know, nowadays that's a easily a 250, a $300 million proposition. Uh, you're going underground sometimes up to six, seven stories, which is you, where all the risk is, right? which is where there's an astronomical amount of risk. You're shoring up earth and roads and infrastructure. Sometimes you're building around SkyTrain stations that you need to make sure don't fall down and collapse, right? Like there's all this kind of stuff and, and, and you're chasing a return for taking that risk. Right. Um, and so, um, it's, and the it, time frame has gotten way longer the, the, well, based like, on the know, scale. Uh, and absolutely. The like, yeah. And this was, this was back then when it was less risky, yeah. right? Today, yeah, we can get into that later. The complexity of real estate development and the risk proposition is, is entirely changed. Um, you know, from then until today. But one of the key takeaways from there um, was um, there's a lot of people that can't stomach that and they're looking to find a high level of certainty. And what often happens is you have paralysis by analysis and you end up missing market windows and cycles and, and you can't. And what, what I took from there, and I, I've said this before, the number one was learning how to push the go button. Interesting. And, so and you're saying that other companies missed opportunities I've, by analysis I've through paralysis, paralysis seen, through analysis. Sure, I've yeah. seen it happen uh, many times. Um, and, you know, um, those guys taught me how to push the go button. They pushed the button. What did that sound like? What were the words around it? It was, they, they, you know what? It was actually quite quiet. It was almost as like, this is what we do here and how we do it. Right. And, and you, you rely on instinct and experience along the way to work out the unknowns that are before you. And, and you think about that for a second, it's a mentality, right? Like there's, there's certain people that that's not something that they're going to be comfortable with. Yeah. And then there's certain people that have a high level of operation in that environment. And, and I found that that was like a, a huge thing there. And I'm so grateful to be honest with you, to have learned how to push the go button, because I think in today's environment, fast forward to what we were just talking about, yeah. where this level of complexity exists, that is just unbelievable. And the risks, right? The project sizes have grown, the complexities in the projects, you know, these bloody planners, the urban planners are trying to get every single type of real estate into one project you know we want job space we want office we want retail we want uh quasi-industrial we want non-market housing we want purpose-built <laughs> rental and then you can have some condos too right and you know and so like trying to get all of that and we want it to be uh you know energy efficient and have a, a you know the best mechanical equipment and uh you want we want you to go towards net zero in terms of car or carbon and blah 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 right and it's like holy christ so fast forward to today to operate in that environment and understand how to push the go button in that environment, that's like, you know, uh, I'm grateful for learning how to push the go button. No doubt. It's more valuable now than it even oh, was back then. Absolutely. And it was hugely valuable back then. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
What else did you learn there? What, what about, what else about the culture or the performance? Cause certainly that company has been on a huge performance for those of you out there that don't know. Ani is one of the biggest uh, developers in Vancouver. I got, I've got, I wonder if North America and by pri- now. privately head, privately, privately held, held. Totally. Yeah, I think top something top 10 for sure in the States than they are in, the, in Canada now. Yeah. I think. Talk about instincts. I remember instincts because I worked with with you guys with Ani for four years, which I really appreciate and learned a lot too. Uh, not directly, but as as a client relationship. And uh, one of the one of the times I remember was um, around that during that time, which was two thousand and nine, uh, starting um, around that time, it was a coin toss to decide whether for Rosanna and the leadership team there was trying to decide whether to, get, to expand into the U S or to mm-hmm. actually Alberta, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, it's hard to believe that that was ever even not sure. Um, but on instinct or for whatever reason that the U S was the decision and that's worked out pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It's very, They're massive. I don't know how massive. many billions or whatever, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. nobody knows yeah. huge success. It can't all just because of, uh, is it instincts, Hiring, goal-oriented, competitive, thick-skinned, autonomous, embracing teams. Um, go button. What else is there about the culture that's that's resulted in this kind of performance? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, right? I think that everything you just said. They can also be shrewd. Let's be honest about they, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're shrewd for yeah. sure. Like I got me. four haircuts while we were working together. <laughs> <laughs> By the fourth one, it was like, why am I doing this? I learned a lot, actually. Chris is a good buddy, and but he's also very good at um, claiming limited authority. So all four haircuts came from him, but they're all like, you know, Rose won't. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 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 No, it's uh yeah, they've been wildly successful. And I think, you know, you named all the, you said all the, the key words as to why that is the case. Yeah. yeah. And still are, things are changing there. I think it's, it's so big, it's got to become bureaucratic and, you know, yeah. sometimes the, the, I don't, you know, I, you know what I have, I have literally very little window into yeah, what they no look doubt. like today. Uh, yeah. It's been 10 years, I think almost since I was there. And um, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know what, what it looks Has it been like. 10 years? Yeah, almost. Yeah, I think You're so. kidding. Yeah, Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot bigger number than I would have guessed. Time flies. No, it's like three kids or four kids later. And, <laughs> and then West Group. Yeah. Well, that's been awesome too. I yeah. mean, what a great family and company who I also know and mm-hmm. worked with a little bit. Um, they're just great people. And, uh, um, formerly Park Lane, mm-hmm. which is a name still a lot of people remember mm-hmm. as uh, being huge. Well, they were both. They were West Group and Park Lane. West Group was the commercial side and Park Lane was the residential. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was, um, and I should know that because it's around the time that we worked together, that was being transitioned into That's the right. umbrella brand and, yeah. Yeah. and part of, you know, the mandate of uh, sort of success and change and stuff. But you've been so successful there. It's been, uh, I feel like, it's mutual. I feel so happy for you that you've been so successful. And I also really like Peter Wessick and, mm-hmm. and the whole uh, team over there. And um, I feel so happy for him and that family who are family friends of ours that um, that they got someone like you in there who's just so extremely capable and, and is so good at um, taking ownership. And by that, I mean accountability of everything. And, and, uh, I know how you operate and, and part of it's just who you are. Part of it's what you've learned during your years with Ani and all of being part of all the success that they had. And it just seems to be working so well because you guys are just crushing it. Yeah. It's been a wild run. First of all, I mean, um, Wessick family, 
Peter Wessick and his family um, are unbelievable people. Um, Taught me, it's almost like the next stage of um, my evolution and mentorship. You know what I mean? I moved from this radical, aggressive, um, yeah, like a tech super, startup vibe, like just go, 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 go. Yeah, go. and then into West Group, which almost became a startup again too, because we really rebuilt the entire organization um, many years ago. Um, but uh, they, they're they're just uh, they're they're humble, very community oriented. Uh, the Westlick family, um, and and really really care about people. I love Peter Westlick's words. Um, uh, words that like have just resonated with me. And, and so these words actually drive a lot of what we do. And those words are people are the new frontier. Um, and you know, very, very powerful words. Um, and so, yeah, um, you know, Peter and I, uh, he brought me on there and, um, we had coffee with Peter once a week when we were working together and mm-hmm. I took away from that, um, a couple things as well. Uh, in addition to what you said, one was, you know, he's very, he thinks very long-term mm-hmm. and understands where, like he focuses his time on very important relationships. Like for example, um, you know, with construction lenders at a national scale mm-hmm. and some of the people that are like critical to his business, not even in good times, but more in the other times, mm-hmm. you know, become even more important relationships and he understands what's important and he maintains those relationships really, really well yeah, over the sure. very long term. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so West group, I mean, yeah, we've, it's been a crazy run. I mean, I don't know, right. Like a lot of that's because the market. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, but we have, we have a, a, a lot of really, really strong people at West group, a lot of, a lot of rock stars, um, which was by design, right. Kind of going, taking, really, um, taking the same, profile from Ani because we at West group say like I took a a few of the things from there and apply them at West group where you offer a high level of autonomy. Um, you hire the right person to be able to operate in that environment. You provide the right tools for them to understand what the main objective or the mission is with a high level of transparency around that. You back them up with some of the tools, which values objectives, you know, mission, things like that. Um, and, and then if you've hired the right people, they, they hammer, um, and the output as a result of hiring the right people and hammering is a really like high output. Um, and so that's, that's where we are today after, oh yeah, almost 10 years is crazy. Um, with, with incredible people, incredible projects, um, a, a massive, a, a massive land bank, a, a, a great portfolio of real estate of our, like our own portfolio of income producing assets, which is always our core objective is to grow that. Um, and yeah, a really, a really fun place to work. Um, culture is like, um, we're like fanatics about culture at West group, like fanatics. Um, uh, we, we like, I, I, it's like, I'm, I, I, well, first of all, back to, if you use those words, people are the new frontier. And if you really believe those words, well, that means you're interested in talent and building a winning team and treating them right. So how do you, the next question is how do you attract and retain those people? Right. And the, the way you attract and retain those people is simply by culture. And so if you're fanatical about culture, you're going to then bring, draw that talent in. And so, um, 
we we measure culture constantly. Um, one of the tools that we've been using for the last. Um, we also, we, you know, we created a culture committee and the culture committee within the organization um, is uh, very, very concerned with maintaining certain levels of culture. And we bring in people that are on that committee from all over the organization who represent different parts of the organization and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm concerned about this. What can we do to change that? Here's an idea. You know, and we then get that idea has got legs. Let's implement that idea. Um, we've started using a tool, um, Greatest Places to Work. It's called, um, and that's, you know, you can, that's a big, so it's a big infrastructure that's set up essentially to um, survey your culture, and then they certify you if you meet certain um, criteria, um, and, you know, there's a couple of different um there's a couple of different sort of, uh, I guess, organizations like this. This is one of the more um, renowned ones, I would say, uh, widely used. Culture Index is another one. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of them. Yeah. And um, they survey your team? Yeah. So we, uh, the survey is actually crazy. Um, so, um, we do it once a year. So we used to do pulse check surveys. And so we'd probably survey our organization or different parts of our organization, maybe three times a year, which sometimes tires people out. Um, so we were like, okay, how do we like, I don't know, legitimize what we're trying to do here. And, and, and it came down to finding, a, um, a, a, a organization like this and, and they have a certification process. Um, and so we're on our second year of this, the first year, um, we went through the process where they, you know, you, you, it's a, it's a pretty in-depth survey, very in-depth. Um, and you need a high participation rate, uh, rate to get the rich data out of it. Right. So we really, really encourage, and it's anonymous and it's all, and they ask really hard questions and they ask questions about leadership. They ask questions about fairness and equity and diversity and everything you could imagine. And so the first year, I think we had like, I'm going to get these numbers slightly wrong, but may, call it, I don't know, an 87% participation rate, which is quite high. That sounds high. Um, and it's how big you are, especially. Yeah, which it's great. Like we really, like I'm on, I'm on the phone with leaders, get your teams to participate. The deadline's coming. Come on, you got to do this. It's how we learn about what everybody wants in this organization. Uh, and so the first year, um, and I'm, and I'm, uh, pretty proud of this too, is like, so the first year we were, um, uh, we got all of our, and they compare you against companies that are in the top 10 in Canada. And that we were trying, what we were uh, applying for was to be top 50 companies to work for in BC. That was our kind of objective. Yeah. Um, and our answers to our survey questions, they take every answer and they rank you and they rank you in, with against top 10 companies in Canada. And we had a number of answers to questions that fell within the top 10 companies to work for in Canada. Um, and it was around leadership. It was around management capabilities. It was around clear clarity of vision wow. and direction. And so it was, it was even the, the, the organization organization greatest place to work we're like oh we, we this is quite something we know we don't see grades this high on your first go and then the challenge and so we qualified for uh we were top 50 in bc 
top real estate companies in BC, top companies for women to work at in BC, top companies for like philanthropy in BC or giving back. So we, we hit a bunch of um, um, really cool marks. Um, and then we applied, we did it again just this year. We had a higher participation rate and the goal, the mission became, holy shit, we got high scores from the get go. We got to like, how do you maintain that? Yeah. The concern was that was going to drop because we were so high at first and we beat it. Really? Just, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, um, really quite proud of that. So you, you were talking about culture and stuff yeah. like that. And that's really, that's how you measure it. Yeah. We're leaning into that. Yeah. Um, but we're, but that's how we kind of operate at West group. We really, um, we want to, we believe that talent wins. It's like a fucking sports team, man. If you want to be the winning sports team in the league, you're going to assemble a team that wants to be there, wants to fight. They're well compensated. They feel really enriched by their roles and their jobs and create that environment. Can you share something? There's a lot of entrepreneurs listening with their own teams. Can you share something you had to work on? Like something that you learned from doing this exercise that you didn't score as high as you wanted to in and wanted to focus on? Um, there, yeah, I mean, you know, there was like, so they give us the data by division. Like we get all kinds of segments of data, which is really valuable. Um, you know, there was a couple of uh, divisions where the data dropped. And we're kind of bringing down our scores. So right away, we were like, what's going on in those divisions, yeah, right? And, you know, you sit down, you talk to the leaders, and you, and you try to... You, you try to understand the leaders of those divisions. What's because you have blind spots, right? As yeah. a leader or a management team or whatever. Um, and so it, it really, um, it really sh shows you what your blind spots are. You know what else it does? When you call that meeting, it really tells the leaders of those teams that this is important. This yeah. matters. You know, yeah. your numbers went down. Let's yeah. talk about it. Yeah. Well, and in some cases, um, it resulted in a change of leadership. Wow. Yeah. So, you, you know, to answer your question, I mean, that's like some of the things that I, one of the main things is, I, you know, there are blind spots. Um, and if you're really, really, uh, if it's really important to you to maintain these, these scores and stuff like that, sometimes that, that may, you know, yeah, that's what it results in, unfortunately. Yeah. But it's, uh, I, I agree with everything you're doing. It sounds amazing. And, and, and I, I'm not so eloquent as, as Peter Wessick, but I talk with my team about being in the people business all the time and, and, uh, also very culture focused by talking about our company purpose and values every single day, including today and about just finding people that, like you said, want to be here. Uh, I've talked about it multiple times already today about people that want to be here that are, uh, that are doing what they want to do, but aligning with their goals and helping them accomplish their goals and how much better that is like a square peg in a square hole, as opposed to the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so everything we're in the people business and that's just the way it is. And it seems now more than ever, ever since COVID, which has been the pandemic, um, you know, empowered employees, frankly, employment uh, feels not like a master servant relationship, more like a partnership than it's ever felt in the past, I think quite drastically. And it's, it's so good that you're ahead of that game. Mm -hmm. How'd you guys figure out uh, where people work and whatnot? Did you take the, the whole Elon, COVID? Yeah. Kind of Elon of, Musk get back to work or you don't work here. I or, have lots of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> what did you choose to do? Well, so from day one, so we were also one of the first in our industry to shut down our office. Um, like we were, we were like, boom, get everybody out of here. Who knows what's going on right now? And we um, had invested in a significant amount of technology um, such that we were able to get back to our normal meeting schedule, everything within like two weeks, which was really 
awesome. I credit, um, you know, uh, our former CFO for that because he really invested in that technology and, 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 you know, grateful that we did that. Um, but from day one, uh, literally from day one, um, I basically conveyed to the organization that this will be temporary because it was very quick that you saw guys like Shopify and, and, you know, these companies that were like, we will be remote forever. This is the new paradigm. And there are these major announcements. Right. And I was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, yeah. no way. I said, and so back to the complexities, right. That we deal with and the risk in real estate development and construction. Um, how do, so a, 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 a mistake in our business is a $10 million mistake. Yeah. Right. We didn't just fuck up a run of jeans that yeah. we're manufacturing on the sewing machines. Yeah. Right. That then can go to our outlet store and we sell them at a 40% discount. It doesn't yeah, work that way. Totally. We, uh, a mistake is catastrophic, right? So how do we mitigate against those mistakes? We collaborate. How do we best collaborate in person? Yeah. Right. And so, so that was like one full on, like, you know, stake in the ground on that. Number two is uh, culture, of course, right back to culture. Like how can we possibly maintain this incredible culture we got going on here? If everybody's working remotely or if we're in a hybrid situation or whatever. And I, it's like, I don't believe I feel, I feel like we'll suffer. Right. So I'm saying this literally from day one. And then the last thing, um, is, uh, you know, I, I just, the human condition, um, I think that when all those, you know, major corporations were making those announcements, um, around, we will be remote forever and all that kind of stuff. I think that everybody's underestimating the human condition. And that is we humans desire connection, community, face-to-face -face interaction, um, you know, and we suffer from loneliness if we don't have that. And so, um, sure. Like everybody, yeah. Try working remote. Like you're, you're hearing all kinds of stories of people feeling, feeling disconnected and things like that now, right. Where they've been working remotely or in some hybrid situation, you're hearing stories about diminishing uh, corporate culture as a result of that. Like it's starting to froth up a little bit. Right. Um, and so those were the three main, and, and like, how do you have career advancement if you're not in my face? And I'm not staring at you in your eyes, having a conversation, right? Like, totally. right. Or, or call it manager and, um, yeah. you know, contr individual contributor and that type of, um, uh, that dynamic. So those three main things I conveyed to the organization from day one. And, um, and so there, when we did say, okay, we're, we're making a move now to come back to the office. Um, you know, we did it in a way, obviously it was, it, we were, we were out of the, everybody was gone for a long time, right? Like, a, like it was, you know, that was a problem for like a year where you were remote or maybe you came back a little bit. Then everybody went back again because a new variant came out and yeah. fucking everybody's going nuts. Um, and, and so, uh, but when we, so recognizing that, um, you know, that's a long time to be operating in a different environment where maybe your childcare situations had adapted and all of these different things. We took a pretty fair approach saying, okay, we're now making the shift to come back. And, you know, we were like for the first two months, 
uh, I think we divided people into cohorts for the first two months. This cohort comes in on these two or three days and this cohort comes on the other two or three days. And, and then it was like, okay, we're moving to uh, three full days a week. Now we're moving to full, full four, four full days a week. And we still do offer a flex day. Um, and it's not, a, can't be a Monday or Friday again, back to the human condition. Um, you know, because you'll just take a long weekend and I don't give a shit, <laughs> like, like, you know, Oh, it's not fair. Why? It's like, dude, come on. Like I would even do that. Have right? you ever analyzed, uh, the purport, the proportion of sick days that fall on a Monday or oh, yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of data around that. Right. Um, and then, so, but I would say that the majority of our organization doesn't get away with it. Cause you would do it. You know what? Exactly. Yeah, totally. Uh, and uh, but that's uh, the majority of our organization doesn't even use that flex day. I think that's cool. Yeah, they all like it's. Um, so yeah. How did you know it was going to be temporary? Because I didn't. I was. I must admit, I was wrong about that. I wondered. I'm like, this is it. This well, is just... I, I can't say that I knew it was going to be temporary. Yeah. I was manifesting that it was going to be temporary. Uh-huh. Right. Like it. It would be impossible. I believed it would be impossible for us to operate in this industry in this environment yeah. and do a good job. Yeah. So like one where, you know, hopefully this ends (laughs) and when it does, this is what's happening. Yeah. You're coming back. Yeah. So, and we had a, we had a, we had very little pushback. You know, there's a little, a few people here and there in particular, some people who were hired. We did a lot of hiring and growth during COVID. And so some of the people that were hired along the way and hired remotely and were working remotely, you know, it was like, oh, I'm really, this is what I like. And it's like, uh uh-uh. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, were, did, we didn't have that, but we actually did have somebody that we wanted to hire in a new role in the company. And, uh, and, and we went through the interview process and right sort of near the end when we're really thinking, you know, we're going to hit the go button with this person and make an offer. And we got to like workplace and hours. They had been at one of those sort of tech companies that, uh, had gone fully remote, abandoned it. We're just fully remote all the time. And the idea of coming into, uh, the office, you know, the amount that we would require them was just a, a non-starter. They were part of this camp of like, no, no, I'm going to choose a company that operates this way. This mm-hmm. is how I like to mm-hmm. operate now. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, you're even seeing the federal government start to call people back. Really? I didn't hear that. Yeah. There's been some articles about like, I, I think, <laughs> well, but obviously, I mean, you, can you get a passport? Like, I wonder why that's happening. Yeah. Right. I can't renew my, uh, yeah, I'm having I, not my passport, but the Nexus. Yeah. I'm I, a lot yeah. of trouble getting a renewal. So I think there's some political um, stuff there. Is that why? Well, I understand that. I think the, the I say trouble, it's just taken forever. That's yeah. There's like a backlog of like 300,000 Nexus oh, applications. I think the U S border guards on Canadian soil want to have firearms and the Canadian government has resisted that. And there's been some Who cares. I don't know. I was just, I heard this on the news the other day, which they is like funny. carrying those guns. Yeah. looks sure cool. Do. <laughs> sure do. It's intimidating. It's weird when you're, uh, I find it weird to be in the presence of a, you know, a police officer and you just see their gun right there at the hip. I can just find myself staring. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I totally agree with that. It's like a little kid thing or something. Look at that's real good. It's just right there under that flap with that button. Yeah. 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 So that sounds good. I I felt that our culture, um, I was wrong. We were sort of like remote forever or sort of indefinitely and everyone kind of got used to that. I think, um, I'm an open-minded person. So I was open to the idea that this is a fundamental change and maybe we might never go back and what are we going to do with this gorgeous office? And, but I felt us, so it was just optional. People were left to their own devices. We're also very autonomous, their own decision about where they wanted to work. And, and it, and it was, uh, I think people were working, but we were losing culture. 
I could just feel it, you know, and, and we didn't lose anybody, but we would have, if we didn't uh, implement a really clear plan about which days we're going to be here all together and, and then what the flexibility is, which is quite a lot. I'd say it's 50, 50, 50%, um, really clear and 50% very flexible and that's working for us, but without it, we would have lost culture. Uh, and that would have probably manifested in just, you know, you know how recruiters are so active in our industry, right? They're, our team's getting called all the oh, time yeah. and, uh, and we're fine now. We have very little turnover, but if we hadn't got everyone back together for sure, those calls would continue. And then someone who would have otherwise said no would say, well, I'm not really feeling it. Uh, yeah. Why not take yeah. a coffee? Why not see what the options are? I'd hate to lose people because I love our team. Yeah. Yeah. So during all this period, you were also president of UDI, which is our industry's, you know, advocacy organization with government. Chair of the board. Chair of the board. Yeah, yeah. And that must have been an exciting time, not a typical year at the UDI, right? Fuck. <laughs> it was it like was insane. you had this your own company to run. Yeah. And at the same time, the whole industry is looking to you thinking like, what's happening here? So what was going on in that boardroom? <laughs> it was a crazy. I mean... Um, what, so we were trying the, the, the objective was to try and get construction deemed an essential service. Um, and that was like, so uh, that, uh, uh, that was number one objective. That's huge. It was huge. Well, if you think about, go back to the start of COVID and think about the tower cranes, Right, that were around this city and around the lower mainland of BC. Think about construction. You mean how many there were? Yeah, how many were there were? Think about the 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 how much uh, uh, construction contributes to our provincial GDP, right? Our economy, right? And so, can you imagine, um, you know, construction being shut down like? Restaurants were unfortunately, and cruise ships, and all those other like really terrible, un unfortunate things. Yeah. Um, that was a train. Oh, Jesus. That was the one that rips high speed up yes, to... It uh, it's like bullet train. Yeah. Um, so uh, we needed to liaise with government. Um, we had done a really good job um, of, as, a, as, as an organization at UDI, with um, really, I would say, w with the provincial government w developing relationships. Um, I would actually say, ironically... Not you know like UDI is an, a nonpartisan organization, but I would say the development industry in general is more of a liberal voting kind of you know cohort, uh, and and has been traditionally. And here's the NDP in power, um, and I would argue that with the NDP in power, there has been more collaboration and more access to government. Um, and, and, and genuine collaboration than I have seen certainly in my career. Um, so it was good. Uh, there was a good relationship there and we just worked really hard, um, to understand what, how we can make it an essential service. So construction stays open. You must and, have had to first understand how is that decision going to be made? Who's making it? Well, so the interesting thing, I think, and this was never a conversation, but there was political risk for the government to not deem it an essential service because of things like site C, the dam 
Oh, right. I and this wasn't. This is more maybe. I wouldn't say a conspiracy theory, but you know, just like yeah. There, and and there's other people that we we've talked amongst ourselves. Like it would have been if they were shutting things down like that. Then this there's a cascading well, set of problems. You can't just <laughs> shut down residential construction or whatever. Then you yeah. got to shut down the hospitals that are under construction. You got to shut down Site C, and these are huge, huge government infrastructure. The the Metro Vancouver waste, uh, the big plant that they're building over over there and across the water here, um, the sewer plant, sewage treatment plant, like these are huge, huge infrastructure initiatives that would also need to be shut down, right? And so you can imagine the delays and the costs that would come with those delays. So I think that there was motivation by the province for some of those reasons to also want to figure out a way. So we were aligned, I think, in the obje- in the objective. Um, and so it was really like, you know, Anne McMullen, who's the president and CEO of UDI, um, and her team, who were awesome. You know, we it was like, oh God, I remember, I swear we were having like meetings with, you know, the premier's chief of staff at like 9 p.m. at night, like just trying to grind out how we were going to make this happen. And what we ended up doing is we ended up getting um, a group of, from, you know, our industry and the general co- like general contracting industry, like Axiom, Leadcore and all these guys. And it was like, look, we're trying to figure out how to stay in business right now. And, um, and we think there's an appetite to deem construction an essential service, but we're going to have to self-regulate and self and self, um, discipline, like, uh, you know, we're, we're the, we're going to be sure safety. Yeah. COVID. Safety yeah. Protocols. And, and, and we're, so we're going to develop out these protocols. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be totally transparent about it. And if you don't be serious about maintaining and um, disciplined about maintaining those protocols, we're going to get shut down. So figure it out. And so we put it all out and we put what the guidelines were out. Um, You know, we had workers comp come to our site and show them how we were following these guidelines and what we'd implemented. They were actually quite stoked. And, um, and everybody started really doing a good job of self-regulation. And, and we've got construction open. Thank you. During COVID. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was, like I said, Anne and her team and, and there was the other board members at UDI who were involved. And then of course, all of this, like we developed these subcommittees to But as a team, what an accomplishment. Yeah, it was, it was crazy, but it was, um, it was crazy to be honest. Um, it's one of the, re- I was, spo- I, I didn't even, I, I actually resigned from UDI <laughs> after all of that. Uh, you mean the whole organization? Yeah, basically. I mean, I'm still, a, I'm still a member. I mean, I was on the, I was like, I'm I, up until like 46 when I, I think I was 46 or 47 when I resigned. Um, and I had been on the board for something like 12 years already or something. I think I was the youngest chair. Um, I was, um, also going through a period of time of some self-reflection um, because I've been, uh, you know, for my age, I've been doing this for a long time and I've, per- and I've actually like the volume of product that I, that I've put out for my age is significant. Um, and that's because of the Ani years for sure. Um, that I, I've also, I, I feel like I'm a developer who's actually like 60 years old <laughs> and I'm like ragged and I have a very low tolerance for bullshit and bureaucracy <laughs> and all this stuff. And so, um, you know, I was, I was showing up with government officials, 
politicians. I was showing up as Bo Jarvis, president of West Group, as well as chair of UDI, which is our industry association, and making up whatever percentage of our economy. And I was going into these meetings and I was erupting. <laughs> <laughs> and and I found, because I, it's just it like, you know, especially in this day, it's like, I mean, you know, the housing crisis is a clusterfuck. Yeah. And it's a myriad of just crazy politicized housing strategies and policies and it's just a gong show and we can get into that in greater detail but um i would i would find myself literally sending emails of apology after meetings to multiple people <laughs> and um and i'm like you know i don't think that's good for udi i don't think that's good for west group and i don't think that's good for bo jarvis um and so i was like i gotta like i gotta make a big change um and so i i resigned because I did. I think I thought that I maybe was starting to, um, you know, create a negative impact as opposed to a positive impact. Um, probably were. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's probably a good call. Yeah. Right. Like take uh, some pressure off before it's like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so I, that's what I did and, um, and resigned from the executive resigned from the board. I still participate in like one, uh, committee in particular, and that's around CACs at the city of Vancouver. Um, there's another entire podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's the UDI story. Yeah, but, you know what? I love. I I'm a big advocate. I'm still a big believer in UDI. I'm. Uh, we're huge supporters of UDI. Yeah, we still have tons of our people engaged. We have a, we, our senior development. Uh, Brad Jones, our SVP of development, is on the board now. Um, so cool. it's like we're still. It's it's a very dear to us for sure. So, it is, and yeah. it's cool. You put in such a, a long shift there that. Uh, you know, when it was your turn to be chair of the board, it was just, everyone, they advocate for our industry all the time, but it's usually around, you know, CACs and things that are important. But at that time, that one thing that was accomplished by the whole team there uh, was just critically important to us and just so many people in the yeah, whole was, province, right? Yeah, it was a big thing. Yeah. So what, in our industry, what's working, what's not working? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start positive. What's working? The market? Is anything working? <laughs> um, no, it's messed up. Let's talk about it. I mean, honestly, this is like, you, 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 there's a day long podcast, right? Like uh, half the people just left the show. Half the people just said, okay, I know it's messed up. I don't want to hear yeah, it. I'm yeah, out. Yeah. But for the half that do want to hear it, let's hear it. I, you know, um, what's working. I think that, um, we obviously have incredible supply and demand fundamentals here as a result of the federal government's immigration strategy. Um, and so we have demand as a result of that. We also have a very land constrained environment that we operate in. We have the agricultural land reserve, we have the mountains and we have the ocean. Um, and by virtue of that, we, we create a demand issue, right? There's scarcity uh, of land and product. Um, it's true in, in Vancouver or we can, we create a supply issue. Um, I would say all across the lower mainland, like you run into the agricultural land reserve, ALR, sure, yeah. right? Everywhere yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, and so you're starting, there's less and less greenfield sites, more and more, um, you know, infill sites or, uh, brownfield sites. Strata consolidation. Abs yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and so you have, a, you, I think I said you created demand pro you're, you are creating demand by that, but it's because of a supply. supply issue. Um, um, and so I think that, that that's a, that's a, 
It's a positive fundamental to operate a business in when you have greater demand than supply. And the Metro Vancouver brand internationally. The Metro Vancouver. So those are positive things. But, you know, it's also creating uh, a heck of a crisis, right, which is not positive yeah. i don't think um for many reasons um so you you know you asked what's working um to be honest with you i don't think much is working in real estate today i don't um and so you know for any listeners here who want to hang up now because they're looking for more optimism i'm afraid i'm the wrong <laughs> fucking guy um you know i think um i think that it's i think real estate development has never been more complex i think the the delivery uh and i say real estate development across all all of the continuum, right? If you want to talk about housing, I'll talk about the entire housing continuum from social housing with hard to house right through to, you know, under market housing to purpose-built rental to luxury condominiums. That entire continuum is a clusterfuck. I will also say that uh, building industrial and office and retail uh, is all very challenging, Right. Like it, it is it is extremely complex and you have and, and, and some of the primary like forget about the market for a second. Forget about interest rates. Forget about inflation. Right. Let's just talk about regulatory framework and policy. So we're in an environment where we are we are effectively working through uh, multiple crises at the same time. Right. So let's talk about um, indigenous reconciliation. Right. I, I, I won't put the word crisis on that. I mean, you know, some people might, but um, huge initiative that is creating a lot of layers of policy. Right. To work through. Uh, let's talk about climate change, climate change. Massive, massive initiative that's creating layers and layers of policy. Right. So now let's talk about um inequality and, and, and lack of housing supply, right? The reactionary nature of our government is to create more and more policy layers to try and fix that problem. And so now I've just told you about all kinds of reasons that we have multiple layers of policy and you add them all together into a giant pot. Half the policies are competing with one another. Um, and, and no one, and, and no one barely anybody understands how to navigate that policy framework, the regulators themselves barely understand how to navigate that policy framework, right? Yeah. And so that's what we're operating in. And so until, until, <laughs> you know, we have some loosening up or, or greater understanding of the damage that the system is creating, I don't see it being very fun to be in real estate development. Like, don't get me wrong. I love my job. I love real estate. I'm a real estate guy. I love it. Right. But I wake up in the morning right now and I'm not finding it too enjoyable to be in real estate development. And you, no disrespect, have a huge team behind you. Yeah. Really deep pockets, a huge track record. You're in the best possible position yeah. to be successful. Yeah. Imagine, you know, the up and comers that yeah. are trying to oh, carve sure. out a living in this industry. Well, but I, I actually think it's a bigger problem when I make a statement like that. And I and let's just say me as in like a general me, right? Like a Bo Jarvis or a 
I don't know, you know, a Chris Evans or, you know, uh, I don't know, like, you know, people who are um, in the real estate world, they're leaders, they're inve- Peter West, like they're, they're investing capital and time and bandwidth into uh, the development of real estate and the supply of housing. Right. And um, when you have people like that uh, getting up in the morning and not feeling too overjoyed about going and building housing, like that's a bit worrisome, yeah. right? Because capital has little tolerance for bullshit. Yeah, I never looked at it like that. Right? That's true. Capital has little tolerance for bullshit. Because it has options. And there's options, yeah. right? So so what are the options? Well, we can deploy capital outside of real estate. Totally. Right? Or we could deploy capital in real estate in a different operating environment. Maybe that's geographically, yeah. right? Which lots of people are doing. Totally. The flight of capital outside of the lower mainland of BC by BC development companies into the United States or other parts of Canada has been significant over the last decade. That's the real right? cost. Right? Totally. And so when you, when and, and, and I know like there's, there's, there's this sort of spectrum of opinions out there there, right. And there's the, there's the, the far on this end of the spectrum, there's like the private sector should be responsible for delivering housing on this end of the spectrum. It's like nationalized housing. Right. Yeah. And so, um, when you're, when you're, when, so when I, when I say I wake up in the morning and I'm tired of doing this and, you know, maybe we should take capital down into, I don't know, you know, Denver, Colorado because the regulatory, you know, they roll out the red carpet for you when you walk to city hall. Right. Um, the people on this end of the spectrum who think we should nationalize housing, they're like good riddance, Bo Jarvis. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and, and it's fine. I'd love to engage in a conversation with them and say, walk me through how you intend to nationalize housing. Right. Because as of today in our country, about 95% of all housing, including nonprofit housing is delivered by the private sector. So if you wanted to change that. So when you say nationalize, do you mean like the federal government takes care of all of it? Built it? Yeah. And operates it. Like just operates the regulation, the the sort of rezoning and all that kind of stuff. Like basically like communism. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, so, so, so there, but there are people who believe that that is the answer. Again, I mentioned a continuum or a spectrum and that's at that, that's that's at the one end. Right. Um, and, and so, um, but walk, even if you want some, um, uh, uh, like a hybrid of that. Well, let's talk about how that's going to happen when today you're in a system where 95% of the uh, housing is delivered by the private sector. Right. So, um, so how do you change that? Right. To, to make that say 50, yeah. 50, it's going to take years. It's going to take untold trillions of dollars. And so it may be, I would say it's going to take decades if you wanted to shift that paradigm, but what's before us, this crisis is before us. So, Instead of um, vilifying the private sector and the private capital and making them the boogeyman and the enemy, why don't you change the narrative to say, okay, look, like it or not, this is our system. If we wanted to change it, it would take a really long time, too long, right? We'd, we'd, We'd all be really up in a bad place. So let's embrace what we have. Maybe there's ambitions to shift it a little bit. Fine, work on those, but embrace what we have and say to private capital, look, uh, we like, let's get you here. Let's get you working. Let's entice you to do that. Right. Um, 
and and understand that private capital requires a return to be invested, right? And I would argue that um, there's a lot of private capital that has a high level of social conscious. If you want to develop it back to retention, attraction and retention of, of good people, those people want to know that you have a high level of social conscious and that you may in fact forego some profitability for social outcome. Right. So I would argue that a lot of the private capital in this town is already operating that way. So they're taking lower returns to have a greater amount of social outcome. They're doing different things. Right. But that's not talked about. There's an article in the Vancouver Sun yesterday about David Eby's announcement with the five hundred million dollar fund to go and buy um, rental buildings. Um, But if you pull up that article, um, you can read it. Go go look at the tone of that article and how they're talking about REITs. And the finance, you know, the financialization of real estate and REITs, they buy up properties and they evict people and demo, demo evict people to get their rents higher. And it's all about return. That's not true. It's not true at all. They're making REITs out to be the bad guy. They're making, and they're not. They're an important part of our economy, um, an important part of getting housing built. And man, most REIT operators that I know, Canadian REIT operators, they are hugely into social outcome. They manage their buildings really, really well. They're not out there demovicting and renovicting people. And so these type of articles right here, um, and at the end of the article, she interviews uh, Mark. Goodman from Goodman, who conveys what I'm conveying right now. And it's like a false narrative and all this kind of stuff. So that the, the journalist is, is getting that side of the story out, but still it's the, the, the politicians, even David Eby, who I actually have a high level of respect for, by the way, and admire, um, he, in this article is being quoted as saying these REITs, you know, they're villains and all this kind of stuff. And I just think that's doing such a disservice to actually moving the dial on the delivery of supply of housing. Besides the budget, what are they proposing? Rent control? No, they're not going there yet. Um, but they're, they're, but it's it's more the narrative yeah. in this article and the narrative that is consistent about private capital is in the market yeah. is, and it's evil and all yeah. that. But then no, but no one then says, oh, but ninety five percent of housing is delivered by private capital. Like there's such a incongruence there, right? <laughs> like it's yeah. like, and, and it's like, why don't we just acknowledge that that's the paradigm we're operating in, embrace it, and start to work together to develop sustainable outcomes, right? Yeah. Because right now it's, it's, it's sound bites like that are, that are in this article that policymakers react to and start to say, we should make a, uh, you know, they've talked about putting a first right of refusal on this rental buildings. Go back up there a sec, Nick. It says uh, REITs do not throw tenants out into the street. This is Mark Goodman. Yeah. This is a very, convenient narrative it's politically expedient but it's the farthest from the truth and yeah. he's right yeah right so it's good that the journalist put that in there yeah um but the general narrative that's coming from the government they also talk in this article about this concept of a first right of refusal for nonprofits when a rental building gets put for sale right but that policy right there is a direct result of this false narrative about REITs being having a negative impact in the market
What does the first word of refusal mean? Well, I don't even like, know. That work, I, I don't mean? know. It, I don't know. It, it, this The way that this article's written, if you read it about the first right of refusal, it actually kind of gets it a little bit wrong. It says, EB hasn't yet announced progress on another plank of his housing platform that is to pass a law ensuring right of first refusal for nonprofit housing societies looking to buy low-rise buildings that are up for sale. Thereby, this is where they're wrong, thereby preventing a bidding war with private investors. This person who's writing this article doesn't understand what a first right of refusal means because a first right of refusal is you go out and get as much offers as you possibly can, and then you go to the person who has the first right of refusal and say, here's the highest, best offer. Do, Do you, you want to meet it? Yeah. So that, they don't know what they're talking about right there. <laughs> totally. Right? And so, That's why I asked how it works. Right? It, it doesn't even yeah. make sense. So I guess the point I'm making, and in the back to what's working and what isn't, right? What isn't working is this continuous and consistent narrative that is making the situation more polarized and more divisive, right? And, you know... I can I can Google my name and you don't have to go too far where I'm you know or I go into Twitter or whatever I'm called a douchebag and so so like I, I we're we're a good company we're trying to build housing with a social conscious and do right in the in our communities and really do a good job of it and every morning I'm getting up and someone thinks I'm an asshole or they call me a douchebag or any you know if I'm interviewed in an article you go into the comment section and it's like this guy's a moron and all this kind of stuff and it's like why do i want to do this yeah. why do i want to continue to do this and so if i'm a huge producer of and i say i if we are a huge producer of housing and i am um you know a part of leading that production uh, isn't it isn't it concerning that people like me are starting to feel that way when they wake up in the morning like yes. I think it I think it potentially is. Yeah, 100% is. Right? Yeah. And so how do like how do we how do we collaborate? How do we get together and start to share perspective because by the way so the perspective of people being renovicted and demovicted um, these are real things, right? Like, see, these are things that are happening in the marketplace. There are people who li have lived in a community for 20 years. They maybe have kids in the schools in this community. Their doctor is in that community. Their dentist is in that community. Their church is in that community. And they are being pulled from that community. And they can't get back into that community at the same price. And they have to uproot themselves. And so from a community perspective and community fabric, that's bad, I think. Yes. Right? Like that is the degradation of community fabric. That's what that is. And so that is happening as a result of the lack of supply of housing, in my opinion. And so how do we... So that's a real perspective, right? But... Okay, I have another perspective too, right? So that perspective, you see, you know, back to that spectrum of people, right? And their opinions on how housing should work. And you have the private on one end and then you have the national on the other end. And so there's people out there, tenant advocacy groups that in their manifesto, it says all rent should be free. Right. So, okay. So I, I, how to walk me through that. Right. Cause my perspective is this, um, you know, small 20 unit rental building. Um, there was a rent freeze during COVID. 
Um, and in that time, property taxes went up 100%. Insurance went up 150%. Um, and we had and, and we had zero turnover of tenants. The next year, I think there was two years of rent freeze with COVID. So the next year, another rent freeze. Then the next year, they allowed 1.5%. And then just this last year, I think they came out and it was quite controversial with like 2.5% rent increase allowance. So now you have a building where you've had zero turnover in four years. That 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 um, that property tax thing that I said, 100%. And some of our uh, buildings, that's year over year, 100% in property tax, <laughs> yeah. right? So well, there's another irony. You have this, the government who is allowing or creating a rent freeze is taking massive amount. It's your number one expense item on your operating statement. Um, but so now... I want to, uh, and, and, and there's a standard of living that's expected by those same tenants in this building. So I'm expected to maintain that standard of living, replace a boiler when it goes, replace the roof when it starts leaking, make sure the landscaping's up to par, it's a nice place to live, the hallways are cleaned and vacuumed and all this kind of stuff. Um, yet these buildings are starting to operate in the red, right? And so like, <laughs> that so now I just shared two pretty opposing perspectives, right? The one where someone's being displaced from their community and it's horrible, and then the other where we're trying to operate a building and maintain it, and by the way, pay a mortgage on it, right? It's not like we own it, there's a mortgage on it or whatever, and pay interest on that debt and pay and all this kind of stuff. And and the buildings are now operating in the red, and we can't afford to replace the boiler. When it goes, we can't like, uh, we, we want to replace all the windows to make the building more energy efficient. And it's $120,000 cost to replace the windows, but we can't get that money back. Right. And so we're West group. Do you know how many of these little walk-up buildings in Kitsilano are owned by the little old Greek lady? Yeah. You know, the little old Greek lady owns two and three buildings. How is she figuring this out? Right. So how do we come together? Like, how do you get the little old Greek lady, the, the, the hardcore tenant advocacy group, the policymakers, the politicians, the private capital, the banks, by the way, who are a huge part of this whole ecosystem, to come together and try and develop sustainable policies that actually work for all parties, right? And there's going to have to be compromise in order to do that. There's no, you know, you're not being coming out of that meeting, hundred percent satisfied. Um, but to date, we don't do it that way and we've never done it. And so until we figure out a way to stop this divisive news cycle, this polarizing us against them situation, we're never going to come out of this. The demonizing of the developers. Yeah. Yeah. Or landlords or building owners, yeah. REITs, right? Yeah. So, yeah, well, this, I don't know. It's a sob. I mean, you know, it's it's not a sob story. It's I agree with everything you're saying, and and you're doing it right now. That's why you're here. People need to you leading the company that you're leading, producing the housing that you're producing. It's important. You know, you're an important factor in this issue and this problem, and and people need to know you. They need to they need to know the the uh, ski board ski you know skiing skater punk made good turned into you know one of our industry leaders and that you're a real person that really cares about these things and what's going on at your company and you're not going to get that message out 
in eight minutes on CKNW. They, they need to hear it from you. All those people that hate you, you know, the real estate haters, the yeah. uh, keyboard cowboys, keyboard, the, the keyboard social, assassins, yeah, the keyboard assassins, keyboard. the socialists, they're all listening. Yeah. And it's better that they, uh, they know that there's real people leading these, what they see as these big sort of evil, mega rich development companies. Well, and, and man, don't read the newspapers. Call me. Yeah. I'll have coffee with anyone. I'll talk to anybody in that spectrum that we just talked about on the right, left, center, whatever, to have a conversation that's rooted in fact and data about the housing system. Right. And to convey that we're not like some crazy evil entity that's, you know, raping and pillaging communities. We have, I don't think we, we have never demo a single tenant. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we do have, I say that we have, um, applications in on buildings that w will be demolished. And as a result, people will have to be evicted, but we go through very robust consultation with those tenants and we adhere to very robust tenant relocation policies and compensation and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but we, we do not renovict. We don't do that. Right. Yeah. And, and most of the good building owners and operators out there and even institutional or private, they don't. There's bad actors in the marketplace that, that end up generating these headlines and narratives that make us all look bad. But yeah, you know, call me and let's have a coffee and I'll tell you about who I am and what my ambitions are. And that like, and I want to hear your problems. I want to hear your perspective. Absolutely. Well, you don't want to have coffee. You don't really want to have coffee with some random real estate hater. Who's oh, I've done it many times. Really? Yes. Good for you. Well, <laughs> it's one of my problems, right? Like I choose every battle, but, um, but if yeah, you I could do. have coffee with someone on, on the other side, call it somebody who's trying to nationalize real estate or somebody who's, who's, uh, you know, a tenant advocate or somebody, is there anybody in particular that you would, uh, anybody that comes to mind that you would like to have a conversation with? I, no, I don't. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's any one name or, or group or whatever. Um, you know, we're working on something right now um, that, so I just described all those groups coming together, right? Sharing perspectives, teaching and learning, and then trying to find some kind of common ground and then generating a terms of reference for a working group to generate policy recommendations. Um, so I'm working on that right now um, with uh, the UBC Housing Collaborative, uh, BC Housing's involved, the province is involved, Landlord BC, uh, um, um, the non-market housing, some non-market housing providers. It's loose and early stages. We're trying to see if something like this could have legs, right? And there's all kinds of problems, right? Because of course, I'm like, we'll just help fund most of it to make it happen. But then... Optically, you now have a private sector developer trying to fund this thing and yeah. that'll create all kinds of questions. So, but, um, so no, the answer to your question is there's not one person or entity, but I, I do, I have coffee with people all the time. Um, and not all the time, but frequently often, um, who, um, are from various parts of that spectrum to try and convey who we are to try and convey, convey facts and data and not just opinion and feeling. Um, and to say like, we have to work together and collaborate if we're going to fix this problem. We've looked at it in such a macro level, you know, it's the good and evil. It's, it's like the, it's, it's socialism versus, you know, the free market system yeah. who, who should provide that housing and whatnot. Um, but let's just go down a level. Like what, 
where are the challenges? Like at what level of government should this really be handled? Should it be national, provincial, municipal? It's mainly municipal right now. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, I think that all levels of government need to be involved in housing. Why? Um, I think that they all have a role to play. The federal government has a role to play with funding. The province has the role to play, uh, in my mind, creating political cover for the municipalities. Right. So the province can start to set targets and expectations because the municipality has all the pro the municipality, the, the, the powers that have been downloaded to municipal governments over, you know, the last however many decades are around land use and housing are, are like they have all the power. Right. Yeah. And so now you have an entity that has all the power and they're working in this Byzantine system of of um, council meetings and public hearings, which occur at 7 p.m. at what night. What does Byzantine mean? Just emperor style? Like? Yeah, like old. old. At least that's what I think it means. Yeah. I didn't Google it. I could be using it wrong. <laughs> like just old. Ancient. Ancient. Yeah. Neolithic. Um, and so um, I, I think, and so, and so those municipalities are sitting there having a public hearing at 7 p.m., can you show up at a public hearing at 7 p.m.? I don't think you can because I've tried to get you there. So <laughs> I thought you were just like calling me out and you were. No, and, and, but you can't. Why? Because yeah. you're a dad. Yeah. And you got two kids at home. I just don't want to. And you're sitting, you don't want to. And you're also sitting there, you're like probably, I don't know, maybe you got, you're at one of your kids' soccer practices at that time. Other priorities. Right? Other priorities. How the hell are you getting? So, so the system is. And if I did show up, it wouldn't be fun. No. Honestly, it would be hours of listening to people say the same thing over and over totally. and a whole bunch it's of a yelling show. Right. Yeah. So, and the system unintentionally discriminates against the younger, younger demographic, um, because of that. And, and, and so we talk lots about that, but back to government levels of government and involvement. Um, so the municipality is sitting there in that environment and we've just described the people who are able to show up. They have more free time. They're typically of an, uh, older demographic. Yeah. Retirees, uh, but... Yeah. And, and they're civ very civic minded and they want to control tribute at that time, but they also have different feelings about things than you and I, right? Um, and so, but they're they're sitting there in front of these counselors and mayors and elected officials and they're, and sometimes it's getting quite passionate. Maybe there's, you know, uh, someone who's up there and I see it all the time where they actually get into, go into tears about what this outcome, if approved this evening could result for my lifestyle and way of life and all this kind of stuff. And what's that municipal elected official to do who wants to get reelected in that moment, right? There's no political cover. There's no, I'm sorry, I sir. See. I understand what you mean. Now. There, I, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Yeah. The province has put these mandated <laughs> targets on us and notwithstanding your opinion is very valid. We have to meet these targets or we don't get transit funding. We don't get funding to improve all the new sidewalks. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's how the province should be involved is setting those targets, setting those mandates, federal government funding, especially for rental housing and non-market housing through CMHC province has a role to play in funding as well. Municipalities need to figure out their shit as far as the regulatory framework. We have how many different municipalities here in the lower mainland, 20 some odd municipalities, all with their own regulatory framework for God's sakes, building the same six story building or high rise building or industrial building. Right. They're all doing it their own way. Yeah. And so it's like, and sometimes within each municipality, the, the zoning is different for different like parts of town. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so all of that stuff is, is just, you know, a total 
cluster in my mind. Um, and and does the provincial government have authority to decide how, for example, zoning and rezoning is going to well, work in every city and say this is it? They I. I mean, I, I believe they do, and that's one of the things that um, you know Premier David Evie has come out and said is that he is going to start to um, you know infiltrate, for lack of a better expression, municipal um, regulatory framework to stimulate um, housing supply. Uh, I think one of the things he's talking about is first setting targets, and then if some of these municipalities don't meet these targets, he may um, say you're not going to get funding for infrastructure. Yeah, it's a negotiation. It's political. You know, it's not like uh, you talked about Byzantine era. It's not like the old days. Did I use where, the right word? Did anybody relating to Byzantine now? Is the one empire uh, a so, system or situation excessively complicated and typically involving a great deal of administrative detail? I used the right word. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's good. It's not like. The ancient times, though, when the lord of the province gets to tell everybody how it's going to be and just do it. It's a negotiation. It's political. He can't, he can't have the mayor of Vancouver hating on him because he wants to get reelected. It's so true, right? So the province, it's a balance. Everything's a balance. So the, ba- you know, the elected officials in the given community are there to represent the interests of that community on the ground. Yeah. So how can an elected official from the province come and truly understand the needs of that community, yeah. right? So there's a balance balance for sure there. Right. And, and, and I think that, I think that, um, EB and his government understands that there's that balance. He said as much that he wants to work with the municipalities, but he's also said like, you know, there could be consequences and, you know, there's some, there's some hugely offending municipalities in the lower mainland, yeah, right. That are for all intents and purposes, no growth municipalities. That's, that's what they are. Is that the abuse or is it the opposite? Is it like, you know, aggressive negotiations and, and soaking the developers for too many fees? And Oh, man, the fees. You know, CMHC, I, I believe it's, uh, I want to say it's July 5th, 2022. CMHC came out with a report that um, talks about how uh, various levels of government's fees, taxes, and levies make up you know, they put the percentage of the cost of housing. I I swear to God, it was probably like 20 or 30%. You might want to pull that up and we can confirm that. But, um, but also more than the developer's profit. So the fees, levies and taxes on housing are more than the developers taking in profit. I wonder how many buyers know that. Well, so we've talked about this for years at UDI, putting, you know, the gas tax pie chart on the pump. We've been talking about putting that in disclosure statements. Here's, here's the pie chart. Here's your taxes yeah. on this on this house that you're buying. This why not this home? I, I think, totally agree. You know, I don't know why we haven't fully pulled the trigger. It's been talked about for years. I think more transparency is better. I agree. So I like talking about this stuff with you now. I agree. Well, I think too that um, you know the 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 media hasn't and picked up on that narrative. Um, that well, in my opinion, um, and that when CMHC came out with that report and they um, and they published it. It was, and I think the Globe and Mail may have picked it up. There were some newspapers that picked it up, but it was like the first, like, huh, right? Like, the, the, here are, here's the data, right? Here are the facts. Um, so you you mentioned all the fees and all that kind of stuff. It's it's outrageous. It's crazy, and there's no continuity with any system, right? So 
you know, the city of Vancouver on larger community amenity contributions has a negotiated approach, which is basically the worst process that I've ever been involved in in my life. And I <laughs> honestly want to gouge my eye out with a spoon. Why? Every What's time so bad I, about it? It's just, it's horrible. It's, it's, there's no accountability to the applicant uh, on the side of the city of Vancouver. Um, and they're, they're like to time, like they, they negotiate from a position of strength because they have no skin in the game and they will, they use delay tactics. It's, it's insane that process. And then there's other cities that have a, a more, um, a process that's just more rigid and set out so you know what you're getting when you go into it uh and then there's other cities that do um you know different forms of market-based approach but the point is is they all have different processes and systems of taking that levy and you don't it, and like there's no like content continuity of regulatory framework with any of these things and the, and what that does is no one's accounting for the total cost of everything because it's different in every municipality and different with every level metro vancouver they just came out with a four thousand dollar per door i believe it's that and, and you know maybe need to confirm that it's roughly that that new levy for water infrastructure on every four thousand dollars in metro vancouver and for those listening that don't know, a door means a home. Yeah. You know, it's an industry term for yeah. a condo or, yeah. or whatever. A house, a townhouse. Yeah. And so, and so did, did Metro Vancouver go and put a big spreadsheet together with all of the taxes, levies, and um, fees on housing and how their new fee may contribute to that? Or, or there is some ombuds person who took a look at that. I mean, I think it actually does have to go to the province. And I do think that that fee is in front of the province right now. But I don't know that there's some person who's truly and diligently saying, you know what, that's kind of going over the edge here of the threshold of, you know, getting crazy, maybe we need to, you know, pause on that. And you know what I mean? Like there's no like fully comprehensive database of what all the fees, taxes, and levies on housings are from various levels of government. And no one's really keeping track of that. I don't see that getting fixed. I don't either. Yeah. But the CMHC thing was, oh, there you go there. Yeah. What does that say? 4,261 per apartment, 5,696 per townhome. And six, Those are huge numbers. Yeah, 6,600. But even if they standardize it, what if they standardize it like uh, 75% of the market value lift generated by a rezoning would go back to the municipality and 25% could be kept by the developer? Um, so that's what that's what a bunch of them do, including the city of Vancouver. Do they? Yeah, but they, the negotiation to figure out what that land lift is that they're taking 75% of totally. is like... You're they're an appraiser. You're, you're like... So we've been advocating for the last 13 years that it goes to um, a third party, you know, we call it... Uh, um, arbitration, but arbitration is probably the wrong word, but like a third party adjudicator yeah. that comes up with a number. And let me tell you, they don't want that to happen and nor do we, because now all of a sudden you have a third party that's coming out with a valuation that one of you may not agree with or both or whatever. Yeah. Right. So I think if, if after a certain period and we're, and we may be getting there with the city of Vancouver on this, but if after a certain specified period of time, um, it automatically triggers that you're going to, both parties are going to be motivated to get 
to the end of this and get a deal done, right? Yeah. Um, is, is what I believe. Well, how do you negotiate with the city? Do you show comps and they show comps? Yeah, we submit a big performa that shows, you know, how the project is going to unfold and work and how and how it's viable. And then they take that performa and they come up with their own performa that a hundred percent of the time shows something vastly different. And then you submit third party validation uh, to support your assumptions that are in your performa. Um, in every instance that I've ever done that, they ignore that. Um, and, you know, it's just like this crazy game with no accountability. Um, and that's unfortunately uh, part of the reason why we, you know, there, it's a component of why we're lacking supply. Um, you know, there, an example of that is we made an application uh, on one of our master plan communities to, for, to convert some office density into 220 rental units, purpose-built rental units, in what is the most affordable uh, rents in the city of Vancouver for new product, uh, Southeast Vancouver. And um, they came up with, uh, they first of all, it's very, very challenging to produce a community amenity contribution with rental, right? It's, it's extremely challenging. And we, this is part of a bigger master plan community where the amenity charges are probably in the range of, you know, I, I'm going to use just some numbers. Let's river say district? Yeah, river district. Yeah. So let's just say the amenity charges per door there are probably like $15,000 a door. I don't know. Right. $20,000 a door. So for every, every unit we build there, there's a contribution to amenities in that realm. That, that order of magnitude. Um, so they, and this is, this is converting office to purpose-built rental density, right? It's a covenant on the building for the life of the building. They came up with a valuation of six, over $60,000 per door of a community amenity contribution. How? You put this assumption there, you put that assumption there, and you can come up with any number you want. But do they calculate what they think your profit is going to be and then try to take as much yeah, of it yeah, as they, they can? Yeah, they want 75% of the land left. So in that particular instance, we started the process of responding to that um, position they were taking. And we just said, you know what? Fuck this. And I actually had a temper tantrum in the office at the time. And I took all the papers everybody was working on and threw them up in the air. Um, if truth be told. Uh, and we sent a letter formally withdrawing the rezoning application. So there's 220 purpose-built rental units in what is the most affordable part of the city of Vancouver that would be built and operating today. Wow. But their real estate services department took a position that was so wildly like nonsensical that we just gave up. So well, that's the problem. Now you have to ask the question is how many times is that happening out there? Yeah. That it's not reported, right? Yeah. Like there's no reporting of that incident taking place. We have some letters to support. Like we were withdrawing our application because of this, this, and this, yeah. right? But that's not like, it's not in a database somewhere of how many units aren't built and operating today because of that circumstance. Yeah. I don't know why they don't understand that the best way to address the, the, the home supply issue or the rental supply issue is just by creating more supply. And now doing the opposite just drives up rents and makes it harder for oh, people for sure. getting a start in life to find an affordable place to live. I do believe that most levels of government now believe there's been an argument. All, I, I, I love this argument. Bo, what do you think the answer is to the affordable housing crisis? Well, I believe that it's increasing supply. Of course you're going to say that. You're a developer, right? But I love that. I love it when they say that because let's walk through that for a second. So 
I'm, you asked me to answer a question honestly, and I gave you my honest answer. But now ask me if that's how I want it to be. Because I would way rather operate a business, and we talked about this earlier, where supply is constrained, constrained totally. and demand is far exceeding supply, Yeah. right? Because then what do I do? I have control margins. of my prices and margins and all that kind of stuff. So for some, for these, all these guys who always say, oh, of course you're going to say that because you're a developer. No, that's actually the opposite, the opposite. of what any business operator it's would work. I do. I'll get paid less for it. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so anyway, um, you know, I think that, um, I mean, I don't know where I was going with that, but it, yeah, it's, oh, I was just saying what a shame and, and the supply issue that the, the cities who are looking out for the people, the government who is, is supposed to be looking out for the people and helping people get into affordable housing and find lots of places to live is actually deterring developers from building. They're constraining the supply, sure. which drives up sure. rents. Yeah. yeah, that's what we were talking about. Yeah, and I think that, um, I think we, we we tried all the demand measures. That's where I was gonna go is we, you know, so we said, okay, you know, like there's, there's academics. I'm not gonna name their names here, but they're constantly referred to and interviewed in our mass media. Um, and they have constantly said, no, you know, some of them go with the foreign buyer narrative. Some of them, the supply narrative, there's enough supply and they go and analyze all of the zoned land and all this kind of stuff. And, and then, um, and then the government created demand side measures in the form of like all kinds of taxes. You have the additional school tax, you have the speculation tax, you have empty homes tax, you have a uh, luxury property transfer tax, you have a foreign buyer's tax. Like it goes on and on and on, right? In terms of demand side measures that have been tried now for a number of years. Okay. So what's the outcome? What's happened to real estate prices in that time? Gone up. I've gone up. So, okay. Like, I think, I think that I feel like the supply thing, narrative answer is starting to be more widely accepted by policymakers, academics, and, you know, polit and politicians. Why? What have you seen that makes you think it's more widely accepted? Well, I think you're hearing politicians come out and say, including Premier Eby, that, that we need to increase the supply of housing. You're seeing CMHC come out and say we need to, they, they did another study that came out and said, like, what, I was, we were millions of homes short or something like that over a course of a, you know, a duration in time. Um, and so um, I feel like that the data supports it. Um, the, we tried the other things. So, you know, you can continue to try that if you want, but clearly it's not working. What's left to try. Yeah. <laughs> right. What's left to try, <laughs> right. Is it's increased supply. And the other thing that too, like, um, there's, you know, you, you sometimes go through the comments and news articles and stuff like that. And you, you got all the, we talked about earlier, the keyboard assassins and they come out there. Oh my God. Like, are you kidding me? Supply. Have you not walked, you know, driven around the lower mainland of BC? We've seen more built than I can't even believe the amount of housing that's getting built. I don't think people understand and can visualize the actual supply that's needed. Like, that's what I think yeah, people, right. that's the next stage of education. It's like somehow putting it in, like, if you truly want to develop the supply that's going to start to bring down houses and stay, or bring down prices and stabilize rent prices and things like that, that type of supply is, it's a lot. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's what people aren't really coming to understand just yet. It's massive. Right? It's like triple what you've seen built. Yeah, in, right now a lot more than a few cranes. You just bought a big site in Surrey mm -hmm. because Surrey is growing at nine. The population is growing nine percent a year, mm. which means it's going to double 
by the rule of 72, 72 divided by nine is going to double in eight years. Mm -hmm. Population in Surrey will double in eight years if mm -hmm. this growth rate is consistent. Yeah. That is a huge it's, Well, issue. look at, I mean, you look at, um, oh, there you go. Yeah. I love how you guys are doing this. So just to, to restore, this is CMHC, to restore affordability an additional 3.5 million affordable housing units are needed by 2030. 3.5 million. That's in seven years. I think we build about 240, 250,000 homes a year in Canada, right? I think on a good year in BC, we're Total like- Total including market? I believe so, yeah. I think in a good year in BC, we're like 24,000-ish. Um, and so, you know, you look at what's going on with immigration, right? I think it was about 430, 440,000 um, new immigrants to Canada in 2022. Um, and our... Uh, our um, uh, who the the group the the contingent or cohort of that that comes to BC, um, we we estimate like net new after deaths and um, migration out to other provinces and all that kind of stuff. And when you include births and all that, I think we there's you know I think there's various estimates, but I think like seventy thousand kind of net new seventy to ninety thousand people. Um, there's also um, there's some good stats out there um, for one of your competitors about um, the migration across. Canada, and I think there was 40,000 people that migrated from other provinces into BC in 22,000. Makes sense. That's not including the federal immigration. Yeah. That's just provincial migration. Well, the truth is it's easier to immigrate into a place like Quebec and then from there move right. there. So it's part of it. So if you call it, let's just call it 70,000 net new after all the adjustments for the different demographic things, um, we still in a good year only build like 25,000 homes in BC. Yeah. So like you want to have a conversation about whether supply is the answer or not. That's I don't know how math. you ignore yeah, the math, that math yeah. right? And even, okay, let's even take it further. So say 70,000 of those people, so all of those people need a home, but not all of them can afford to buy a home, right? So you're, you're taking buyers out of the market, which only puts more pressure on the rental market, mm -hmm. right? So, and we talk about, uh, and, and I think that that's where the housing crisis is right now most acute. Rental? Um, is rental a hundred percent. It's that's where it's absolutely most acute because of what I just said, like, and more and more people are being priced out of buying a home, right? Um, because of its own supply issue and the own and dynamics there, including rising interest rates right now, which is, you know, maybe people can't afford as much of a mortgage. And so they're choosing opting to rent. What are their options for rental? Very few. Um, and so I think that that's a component of the market that is acute and really needs focus. The other thing that's worth having a conversation about, right? So we talk about what is affordability. I mean, I don't know. Let me ask you this question. Two bedroom condo in downtown Vancouver. How much do you think that if, if, if you're like, what, what, what is affordable for that unit? New. What do you think if you're, well, what the, do you think it should be? It uh, should be or affordable. is. Affordable. Yeah. Not, not is. No. Affordable. Well, what is that? What is, how do you decide? What, I don't know. Spit out a, a number, though. Affordable is what somebody can afford. Isn't that the well, definition of the word? I think, and spit out a number. A two bedroom to live downtown. Yeah. What's the purchase price of that home? Yeah, and not, and, 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 but what, like, what, to get more people a home, what should that be? A million what? bucks. No. <laughs> Gotta be lower than that. Well, look at my point of view. I'm in the business yeah. of. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I think you know, like uh, when I've asked this people asked people this question before, um, you know, they were like six hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's unrealistic. I know, but so I'm giving you, you a realistic that. number. I know you know that, but so the vast majority of people. Oh, you're talking about Joe Public. Joe Public. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they've for me to move downtown Vancouver, I want to live in a two bedroom. I can afford about six hundred grand. Yeah, yeah, and then that's what it should be, right? Okay. Like that's what uh, a reasonable 
um, condominium in an urban center should be to make sure that um, our ambulance drivers and our nurses and our teachers, very important people in our communities and societies, have a place to live in, in the community that they work in, right? So let's just say it's that number. So let's go through, and, and this is like, this is not incredibly scientific, but that's a number that's been put out to me on more than one occasion. Okay. So if I'm, I'm like, okay, let me try and get you that $600,000 unit. Someone's going to give me land for free. Okay. And I am going to take zero profit, not a dime. So now I've got free land. I'm working for free. Okay. That condo with today's cost environment, both hard and soft cost, and let's just say it's an 800 square foot condo, the cost with free land and no profit is closer, is like $770,000. And I don't think a Which is lot why I said a million, because somebody's got to do well, it and make a, yeah, so a that, reasonable that, amount of money. That's the price that it is, right? So I, but, that, but I don't think people understand that either, right? So you, you get free land and you don't take a profit, you still can't even get to their mark of but, what their expectation is in terms of affordability. You know what I think city, city should do with, like related to this is with fire halls. My team might chuckle because I've said this idea before, but we should take these fire halls, which are old and all over the, uh, the, you know, the city and the city should allow a 40 story tower to be built on that site, put the fire hall in the bottom and build a bunch of work with a partner with a developer like you to build a bunch of three and four bedroom condos up above where everybody can live and take that same approach with, with, with uh, earplugs. <laughs> no, they don't mind it. That's why they're fire people family. You know, I'm, I'm, they're not, let's say fire, fire people anyway. family. Yeah, you can't, the firefighters, it's not firemen. That's very old school. Um, but these firefighter families are, they like the sirens. That's why they do it for a living. They live near their work. They have this special access to affordable housing and that same, you know, it feels a bit nationalistic, but um, that same approach could be taken in and around hospitals and that kind of thing. So from an urban planning perspective, and a fairness and equality perspective, um, living above a fire department with the sirens and the noise, well, that's not livable. And so... Why not? The neighbors live with it. it, it yeah. Hey, <laughs> what is it? Is it? I think I'd rather be 10 stories or, or up than if next you're, door. If you're, if you're ranking livability, that may rank lower. And from an equality perspective, you know, well, that's not fair. Right. So that's always this dynamic that's unfolding too in the planning world yeah. is that, um, is trying to, you know, that's why when we're, you know, there's a social housing, you know what I saw right there. I saw the fatigue you talked about earlier. I saw it's a stupid, <laughs> crazy idea, but someone that's like as old and jaded as you <laughs> yeah, after all yeah, these maybe. projects, you're like, yeah. you hear an idea and you're like, what's the point? Honestly, like yeah. that's the reaction. Yeah. Well, you know? you know, there is, a, there is almost a project like that. It's, um, is it Smythe and Thurlow where basically there's a fire department and like zero lot line and a tower next door. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the other thing too. We're looking, so from an urban planning perspective, we're constantly, uh, making perfection, the enemy of good, right. Where it's like, do you want to get some affordable housing built or do you just, you know, does that, do you th need to make sure that every single house and condo and home that's built is equal to that of the other one. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a big, ideological debate that I think is, is, um, is continuously happening. 
you know, an opportunity for a developer brand out there for, you know, not for West group or for you, but for somebody else listening is, is an opportunity around like in a more transparent cost plus model where the developer mm. is, is going to provide these homes at cost plus 18% call it. Right. And to the buyer market, that would seem very reasonable. No one buys a pair, a pair of jeans or anything without thinking that somebody's making a profit mm-hmm. margin on this, mm-hmm. obviously. And 18% mm-hmm. is frankly less than what a lot of people would think based right. on what they read in the media about big evil developers right. and all that kind of thing. Um, and it, it would even work in the pre-sale world where uh, the developer or sorry, the buyer provides, you know, the normal amount of deposit, there's a price on the contract. And then later at the end of the day, there's an adjustment made. Of course, the buyer hopes it goes down. Yeah. Uh, it might slightly go up, but yeah. there's enough buyers out there that would, that, that, that transparency would resonate with them, uh, that they would choose to buy that way instead of, uh, buying into a project where perhaps the developers value engineering it to make a bunch mm-hmm. of extra profit or mm-hmm. there's a yeah, mysterious right. amount of profit. That's, yeah. that's yeah. uh, yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea at all. I, it's something we've even thought about in the past. Um, you know, you, you come up with these ideas and you start to run them to ground and oftentimes you talk yourself out of them, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I can't remember the last time anybody's made 18% return on cost on real estate development. So. It's too high. Uh, well, I thought the minimum was 15 from the construction lender. Well, the minimum is 15 from the construction lender, but man, I don't know. I'd say that there's a and lot for of For those people- listening, I just want to explain what that is. Is So a developer... A pre-sale developer will make a pro forma plan, a spreadsheet about a project and and go to a construction lender and say, this is our project. Will you finance a project? It used to be they'd make a commitment on that, a commitment letter. Nowadays, they're saying, looks nice. Why don't you go get your pre-sales and then come and talk to us? Maybe it's mm-hmm. not like that for West Group, but for most no, other small and medium-sized developers, sure. yeah, yeah, they're they're now being told to go get pre-sales. Yeah. And a construction lender won't even express any future potential interest unless there's at least a minimum of 15% profit there so that they have some assurance this project will make enough money to pay the loan back. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And say you're saying that 18 is not even realistic. No, anymore. no. I, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't know too many people probably making even 15% truly anymore. Really? Yeah. Um, and, but that's the thing, right? Like it's become an increasingly risky proposition where various levels of government are, are taking more than we're making in profit and, and the, the risk is going up and the risk premium is going down. Right. Yeah. It's, and back to uh, trying to entice the private sector to invest private capital into these opportunities in that environment. I just mentioned it's a, it's a tough conversation. Yeah. It's killing another potentially good wacky idea around flipping pre-sale a little bit where imagine assembling all of the buyers that wanted certain homes in this particular location. We want this many two indents and two beds and one indents and one beds and all these buyers organized into a, a package. And then it's taken almost shopped around like a RFP type process with builders and developers saying we have all these buyers are here wanting this, this tower in this location who would like to provide it. You know, this is the basic level of spec we're looking for. This is it. We'll look at all your proposals. And if you took the risk, therefore, the pre-sale risk out of the equation, um, could those homes be provided cheaper? Because it, it takes it from sort of a, um, a high risk development situation to just more of a construction equation. But as the, is that sort of profit in exchange for risk that developers take, it's continually compressed the potential for something like that mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. is dying on the vine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know... It's, it's a, it's a really, really complicated problem to kind of figure this out right now. Right. Like it's, it's, do you even recommend people getting into the industry? I mean, (laughs) 
I mean, I, I love my industry, right? I, I, I love being in real estate. I love the people in real estate. I love the fact that we changed the skyline like that. Like you get to say that, right? We changed the skyline and that's kind of cool. Um, I just, you know, um, do I recommend people getting into real estate? I, I proceed with caution, proceed with caution. You know, it has this kind of sexiness to it. It's on Vogue Scale. a little bit, but it's like, you know, you, once you get into it and understand the complexities and the risk, um, you know, it can turn someone away. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, if you're, I would say to people that are interested in getting into the industry, it's a wonderful industry with all kinds of different aspects of it, right? Like there's development, there's construction, there's marketing, there's sales, there's planning, there's engineering, there's architecture. There's so many things just goes everywhere. Right. And then you can get into the diverge into the construction trades, which are, there's so many cool construction trades, um, but proceed with caution. <laughs> Do you want to get into a, a heated debate on this couch one day with some socialists? I would totally. I bet you would. Oh, if you could, right. You should do that. Yeah, we should do that. It'd be a lot of fun. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. You'd be perfect yeah. for it. It'll be awesome. Let's do it. But in the meantime, Whistler. Yeah. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah. Thank you for It's been me. so good. I'm really happy that people are going to get to know you as one of the leaders in the industry and what you're, that you're a real person, that you're really passionate about this and that, 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 that your ideas are sound. They're based on math and fundamentals. And uh, um, this is the right way to solve this problem just through sharing like you're doing right now. I thank you so much. All right. Thank you for having me. Awesome.